I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Hiram LaRue. He lives in Maryland near Washington, D.C. His poetry has been published in numerous literary magazines, and he'll be talking with us about literary immortality and reading his poems. Then I'll be doing a review of David Budbill's final book, Tumbling Toward the End, in which he recounts the experiences of his last days with us here on Earth. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our guest today is Hiram LaRue. He lives in the Maryland area near Washington, D.C., and his poetry has been published in numerous literary magazines such as Vox Poetica, Amsterdam Quarterly, and the Little Patuxent Review. And Hiram, I'm so glad you could do this. We met in Virginia, and uh, now we're talking from Vermont to Maryland. It's my honor, Charlie. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Well, now I, I ask if you have things you like to talk about, and you mentioned a few topics. And uh, one I, I thought would, I'm curious what you have to say about is what you called poetry segregation to encourage more crossover among the uh, amazing uh, variety of voices that exist in poetry. You know, I live in a in a county in suburban Maryland, just outside the District of Columbia, that is primarily African American, and also has a large Hispanic uh, population, as well as uh, people with disabilities, LGBT. I mean, the whole mix, the whole gamut. And what I notice is often when I go to readings, uh, they'll often be what I kind of call a little bit segregated, in that the attendees and the poets reading will be of one community and uh, not always the case but often the case and so i'm just kind of interested in what we can do to further mix that salad bowl a little bit and uh try to do, do so not just for the point of mixing but also to learn from each other uh, i know i certainly learn a lot in the way that poems are presented by different communities the topics that are discussed or covered in poems and so trying to Trying to figure out better ways of mixing it up a little bit is is uh, what I'm what I'm all, kind of all about, and I know that this has been of interest to you too. Yeah, you know, do you know is anyone there doing anything on this, like consciously that you're aware of? Uh, we have several folks who uh, uh, deliberately, intentionally reach out uh, beyond, and so there are yes, absolutely, there are readings where. We bring a lot of folks together, um, but if it's not if it's not cared for and how to say deliberately planned, often it doesn't happen as well as it should. Um, so uh, I think it's just a matter of kind of keeping at it, and obviously showcasing the benefits of uh, reading together and working together. Yeah, I think I think in Chicago I've I found probably a more mixed situation at readings than you do. But there I even would notice that there's a tendency for people to almost geographically hang out. Yeah. yeah. You know, people go to this open mic on Tuesday night, and that's the one they go to, and not necessarily come across town to another one where there would be people they sort of know still from the poetry scene, but but not as well as their local uh you could say click, 
uh, that they're used to reading with. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, here we call it coming across the river. <laughs> you know, it's like across the river. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's you know, I think it's just a matter of kind of, as I say, keeping at it and uh, trying to be a little bit more uh, thoughtful about about planning and and uh, designing poems or poetry's readings and and even journals that that allow for and encourage that mix. Yeah. Do you have, uh, are there um, many readings in PG County? Prince George County is where you are. Yes, there are. Uh, well, in the greater DC area, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit of a kid in a candy shop syndrome for me. I could be at, at, at three or four different readings almost every night in the greater DC area. Wow. In the county that I'm in, yes. Um, for example, this coming weekend, uh, we'll have a couple of readings here at local libraries in the county, celebrating kind of the poets and poetry voices in the county. There's a lot going on in adjacent counties, like in Annapolis, that's called Anne Arundel County. Lots going on over there. And then north of us, uh, Montgomery County, um, over in Virginia. Yes, in yeah. the greater area, there are a lot of things going on. It's a great place to be for for poetry. That's that's really good to hear. There was a lot less going on uh, <laughs> a few decades ago when I lived there. I enjoyed the Library of Congress and the Writers Center quite a bit, but um, things out in the community weren't much happening. But it was pre-slam. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Helped, which helped community development a lot for poetry. Yes. So, so how about let's hear a poem. Sure, sure. Um, I wrote this piece a while back, and I thought I'd read it because it's got a little something to do with the time of the year. Um, it's called Better Seeds. Looking up seems early. I'm going to slip outside as soon as springs poke and fences shine. Scout about until you wave me in for breakfast. I'm going to lean into my wishes because this is the nickel time of spring when legs seem longer. There are better ways of learning, ways as ready as your bird box. There are better people, ones who get polished by the wind, and there are better seeds the kind that wait a year or two. But it's hard to wait when everything is curling, when time slips through curtains to let us know that this chance is more than our pillows. It's quicker than that. It's kind of like our neighbor who slides a box of kale starts onto the porch first thing, chuckling not to wake us. So I wrote that a while back, and it's it's about as close as I get to a seasonal poem. Nickel time of spring. The nickel time of spring when legs seem longer. Uh, I'm very tall, Charlie, as you know. I'm six foot six, and I have kind of long legs, and so I relate to things, you know, <laughs> long legs and all. So where did this poem come from? You know, you know, as I do, that poems come from a lot of different places and parts of them may come from different places. This one, as I recall, was based on some time that I spent at a friend's place kind of in the country and wandered around a little bit in the morning and uh, then got called into the house for breakfast. And it was just, you know, it just kind of mosaiced together as a as a piece. I don't know if that's 
typical of how you write or not, but I know sometimes I kind of am a little bit of a magpie and pull things in from all over to, to make the poems. Yeah, just sort of like taking notes and then see what you've got. Yeah, yeah. I do that. do that a lot. Yep. But just part of the getting out in the world and just see what happens. That's right. And this time, uh, th these days and times, there's a lot to see in the world. I'll put it that way. It's, a, it's uh, an interesting time to be writing poetry. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> and speaking of that, uh, speaking of the times, you, you also mentioned you're interested in uh, poetic legacies. Yes. Want to tell people what you mean by that? Well, uh, as I get a little bit older, I, I wonder sometimes you know, if anything that I scratch down or type out will ever live beyond me, to be very blunt about it. And I just kind of wonder if there's anything that I can do to up the odds that it will, it will out, my work will outlast me. And, you know, I realize a lot of that is up to complete random fate. And so probably not a whole lot I can do. Obviously, the you know the overall kind of quality, but that even is subjective based on the period of time that it's read. The other thing too, I notice, and Charlie, I don't know how what you feel about this. Um, I've noticed that if I write a piece that is kind of politically based, it tends to have a clock on it, and I if I read it then ten years later or fifteen years later. I sometimes will get blank stares in the audience. I mean, you know, people move on and they don't recall and so on. And so I've tended to shy away from grounding many of my pieces in current activities. Um, that may be a mistake. That may be a good thing. I'm not sure, but it's just one way that I try to kind of make, try to make the pieces a little bit less grounded in a particular time and more uh more applicable to a you know a little bit broader frame of time i'm not sure if i'm being clear or not but that, those are some of the things that i try to do uh, uh just to to as i say up the odds that perhaps things will be remembered a bit longer yeah well it's that um that sweet spot of being particular and simultaneously universal um, yes, you know, which, which I think of since re, since I like to read those thousand year old poems from ancient China. Bingo. <laughs> and, and I think about, well, they're about basic human feelings and, you know, experiences and emotions. And it, it doesn't matter who the emperor was that year. You know, I, uh, some of the most powerful perhaps. pieces, some of the most powerful pieces I think that are being written today are about the current world situation. Um, they're very moving and they're very... Uh, uh, I think impactful and influential. Uh, first off, I don't know that I have it in me to comment uh, on on those sorts of uh, uh, backdrops. But more importantly for me, well, I'll put it this way. I wrote a piece about 20, 25 years ago about the AIDS quilt. And at the time when I read it, you know, people tuned in and they kind of got it. I read it about uh, maybe 10 years ago, and I think there was maybe one person in the audience who <laughs> understood what I was talking about. I mean, you know, it's just, it, we just moved on, which, you know, is just the way things go. So it was at that point I realized, hmm, you know, well, maybe <laughs> maybe this was too much of a headline or, or a headline piece and not so much, as you were just saying, a, 
a little bit more universal piece. Hmm. It's tricky because again, uh, the other thing is it is to have the times chronicled in poetry. Yes. So whether anybody ever goes back and reads it, <laughs> right? That's, that's the other question. But but the idea that you know I have some anthologies from about all the you know civil rights stuff ha while it was happening back in the '60s, stuff like that, uh, the peace movement, and it, it's uh, interesting. You know, if it's all together in a book, then you know what's going on, right. you know what's happening. You probably have an introduction and a preface and, you know, specific allusions you may miss some, but, but it means more. And it's nice to have that, that kind of history available. Absolutely. And the other thing about it, Charlie, is a lot of those kind of like a necktie, they come back into, you know, kind of come back into relevance after a while if you hold on to them long enough. And certainly these days and times, anything about civil rights and about, uh, movements for peace and justice absolutely right. continue to be very critical these days. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's hear another poem. Well, I tell you, if you would indulge me, this is not so sure. much a poem, but it's a kind of a piece about poem, a poetry. It's called The Power of Poetry. I wrote this um, fairly recently when I was kind of thinking about a little bit about uh, you know what poetry means to me, and this is a very personal take on poetry, so others may not relate to it. But I was asked to write it for a little um, uh, newspaper down in Charlottesville, Virginia. I thoroughly enjoyed writing it, and since then it's been picked up by a couple of other places, and I've read it a couple of times just to kind of get overall reaction. So it's, it's a little bit more of a, a short prose piece, what I call a micro essay. Uh, it's called, as I said, The Power of Poetry. Poetry doesn't vote. It can't rule. It sits on no juries. It signs nothing into law. It runs no companies or houses of worship. And it never, ever wins an Academy Award on all of these fronts that matter. Poetry is powerless. And for that very reason, of course, it is incredibly powerful. Poetry is our trees, our anger, your life, my death. It's the birds that stitch air. It's the soul of night, the feast of day, and that ever-present caution that's careless. Poetry doesn't decide. It doesn't provide. If it answers at all, it does so with questions. And to be honest, poetry doesn't care. It cares as deeply as wells do, yes, but it never brings you water. It wants nothing from you except wanting. And this is probably its most gifting power. And poetry soars when allowed to over just about anything else we can imagine. It's not the clouds themselves so much, but our need for them. Said all at once, poetry is powerful for what it cannot be and for the dreams it wants. If you should ever encounter a poem that makes you jump, ask yourself why. Most likely the answer, if there is one, 
will be from so far fully inside you that your ancestors will wink. Finally, poetry is really nowhere, and so it's just about everywhere around us. It lives in the corner of your eye. It rents most all of your willingness from you. It aches with whatever is gone, and it cheers even raves for what may never be. Thank goodness and badness for poetry and for our never being completely sure how powerfully potent it really is. I love that. Well, <laughs> Charlie, I try to describe poetry by by discussing kind of what it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that both confuses some people, but others seem to kind of tune in. So um, it's a work in progress. This is a work in progress. And certainly my concept of the power of poetry is also a work in progress. Yeah. Well, well, I, I read it online and it's what reminded me to give you a call to do this because you're on my list after being at that conference where I met you. And uh, I said, oh, Hiram, I got to call him up and do a podcast. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> That's really good. So another impact of poetry. Yeah. You know, I, I had a, one other thought about that kind of a legacy question. Yeah. It seems to me a, a, a fact of life, which I'm, I'm not too thrilled about, is that in a way, kind of narrow and definable is an asset. If you always do the same or often do the same kind of thing, then that's the guy who does that. And an identity builds. And uh, I'm personally, I think, too eclectic to do that. I mean, I partly one reason for not liking to stay in academe when I stopped being in academe was you're rewarded for being narrowly special. Mm. specialized it seemed to me you know the more narrow more of an expert you could be on some teeny little thing that's better and that's just really unappealing to me well certainly uh, i come up through the science cone certainly the trend for you know decades has been to specialize specialize almost to a micro specialization i had not thought of that in terms of poetry and its potential impact on legacy uh, what i hear you saying is perhaps identifying and working in a niche area that uh you know helps define kind of your work i want to think a little bit about that because i think there's something to that at the same time i know that often i respect poem poets and poems that that move that play in different sandboxes and that yeah. that do so really well. So you know, it's it's a hard mm -hmm. one. To, it's a hard to call. It's kind of how do you how are you identified by your peers? What I have trouble with Charlie is knowing who the peers will be in the future. In other words, the ones I never will meet, and what will their interests be? That's what for me is a little bit of a challenge to predict. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I can think about that. I think I just have to write the poems. Right. But I, I always feel like, gee, you know, it's it's kind of fortunate if you happen to be readily identifiable, identified with something. Yeah. Hey, Wendell Berry, he's the guy who lives on a farm. Right. And writes poems about his farm, live there forever. Right. You know, stuff like that. Right. Like, like that, you know, where a, a ready identifier comes to mind. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it doesn't matter. 
I'd like to think about that. I think it's a really cool idea. Yeah, yeah. Let's add one more uh, thing to your legacy and have another poem. <laughs> okay. Before we do that, if it's okay, I just want to say that yeah. you and I met at the Bridgewater International Poetry Festival here this past winter down in Bridgewater, Virginia, Bridgewater College. And uh, I, I think you'll agree with me that getting folks together like that in a in kind of a little bit of a random collective to celebrate, uh, explore, uh, I just find very, very um, useful, helpful, and uh, encouraging. So I would encourage anyone listening, if they have an opportunity to occasionally get together with other poets in you know, a gathering of sorts to take advantage of that. I think you enjoyed it, I know I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and there, there, there are always things like uh, split this rock in D.C. every other year. Absolutely, uh, which is a really great gathering. Sarah Browning, uh, who leads the Split This Rock, is a good friend, and she does an amazing job of pulling voices from all over the country, really anymore, all over the world, uh, together in what she calls poetry of witness. Um, and these days and times, particularly important to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. And anyone listening, you can hear Sarah Browning read her poems and talk about poetry on an earlier podcast. Just click through the archive. <laughs> Great. That would be worth a good we, we had a good talk. Good. So this piece is called, How Long Will This Last? How Long Will This Last? Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. What matters more than whether you do or don't is how little difference it makes, like trees at night. You may think decisions are important, maybe so, maybe not, but important isn't the point. What is, is what's average around you, the endless bending cedars, nature's curves that are always there. Your common sense could be solid or foggy. You could be very determined or loose, maybe young or asleep. You may have family or just wander at dawn. These differences signify nearly nothing. Instead, you need to realize, however you can, that the lifting point happens when you are sleeping, and that the best work you will ever do is when you are opening the barn. Oh. <laughs> at night, you come up with some interesting, uh, interesting things pop into your poems. That's very cool. Well, like I said, magpie, you know, <laughs> anything that seems to kind of glitter, I've tried to bring it in. <laughs> Now, you, you mentioned starting off in science. Uh, how, how did you drift over to poetry? Or was well, poetry always I, a part of you? Uh, yeah, I've always uh, been interested in plants and bugs and nature generally. Uh, and so I was trained in those areas of science and worked for many years uh, uh, in those areas, kind of became a little bit of a government bureaucrat. Um, and then retired a couple of years ago. And all along the way, at least as far back as high school, I can, you know, I've been writing um, uh, poems. So it's been a little bit of a, 
almost split personality, Charlie, you know, where yeah. you kind of focus on the professional stuff and then to kind of satisfy the need on the avocational front, you know, I worked on poetry since I retired. Because poets come out at night like bats, you know, I couldn't do much in poetry when I was working. I couldn't go to readings and stuff because I had to get up so early in the morning but uh, to go to work. But uh, now that I've retired, I've been able to go to more poetry readings and uh, gatherings of sorts and go to things like uh, this, uh, the uh, gathering in Bridgewater. So um, all that to say, I've, I've written poetry for a long time. It's just always been kind of in a little bit part of, a little bit different part of the, of the consciousness, I guess you'd say. Yeah. All right, well, if, if you'd like to read one more, we could do that. And okay, we got sure. time to do that. Sure, I'll I'll read this one. It's a fairly short one, if that's okay. Oh, it's sure. called It's called Boy Howdy. My father uh, never cursed, as far as I can remember. He never ever cursed, but when he got frustrated, he would for some reason he would say Boy Howdy, and I don't know where that came from, but I picked that up for the title Boy Howdy. Modern life hurts me. Would that I could die in the arms of seed catalogs or turn over in a bed and feel snow coming in the window. My father taught me to wave at life from cherished corners. His coat pockets were really my teenage years. Carry on is how I feel now. So, May these lines become as strikingly handsome as hands on shoulders. May they cause strangers to look up again and again. May the hope in these lines age well like chewed pencils or turn into stale crumbs that birds will fight over. Boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. Yeah, I can, I can still hear my dad saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those kind of idiosyncratic <laughs> phrases that people have out of their personal backgrounds, you know. Well, my dad and my mom were both raised in West Virginia, and I'm kind of thinking maybe it's a West Virginia phrase. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for being here. This has been really, really good. Enjoy. Thank you, Charlie, so much. And thanks for all you're doing for poets and poetry and for your with your own poems and, and all of this programming as well. All right. We've been visiting with Hiram LaRue. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with Hiram LaRue from Prince George County, Maryland. And now I'd like to talk about a book by a wonderful poet who is no longer with us. David Budbill's latest book, Tumbling Toward the End, was published in mid-April 2017 by Copper Canyon Press. He was a multi-genre author who published eight books of poetry, seven plays, two novels, a collection of short stories, two picture books for children, and a libretto for an opera. As a young man, Bud Bill left mainstream American life for a country home in northern Vermont. There, for the next 50 years, in addition to his other works, he often wrote poems in the style of the ancient Chinese poets, recording his everyday experiences in straightforward language. 
reflecting on his life choices and his insights. As a result, this collection includes several outstanding, very short poems, such as this one. Pare everything down to nothing, then cut the rest, and you've got the poem I'm trying to write. David died at age 75. These poems are from his last years. From them we learn how at 73 he wondered, as he did his annual chores such as smoking the last sausages, defrosting the freezer in January cold, filling out the spring order for seeds, wondered, would this be the last time? If his spirit were not so life-affirming, it would be much more difficult for me to talk about this book of poems, poems filled with pain and the anticipation of imminent death. Here's an example of his life-affirming attitude. It's called, Meditate on Your Own Death. It's good to meditate on your own death. Keep the image of your corpse with yourself always. Imagine your chalky bones moldering to dust. Visualize your own empty skull grinning back at you. This way, you'll be able to intensify the joy of eating and drinking, making love and walking, sitting in the summer shade and visiting with friends. Eventually, David's disabilities increased and he was in severe pain from a a number of different maladies. Ultimately, he couldn't do the chores he had done for so many years and that he greatly enjoyed and prided himself in. He has a poem about loading the woodshed in which he laments how he finally had to hire someone to do it. And its poem concludes, We all grow old and have to give up things we did when we were young. There's grief and sadness when something you've done for so long comes to an end. These poems, as I said, are, let's say, painfully honest. There's a pair of poems that uh, describe a particularly poignant episode. One is called The Party. And The Party describes uh, how at a neighboring farm, this large gathering was arranged. And the final part of it says it was a big party this past weekend out back of the house. Lots of people came from babes in arms to 85-year-olds. Potluck, tons of great food, headlined by crockpots full of pulled pork and baked beans. And after dark strings of little white lights gracefully looped everywhere outdoors and tents out in the field for those spending the night and an enormous bonfire and a band that played well into the next day. And you finish that poem and you think, oh, what a gathering. And I turn the page and the next poem is called Envoy to the Party. I'm going to read the entire thing. It was 8.30 or quarter to nine when we left. The band had played only a few tunes. I used to be a terrific dancer. In the past, I would have never left early. I know my wife was disappointed we were leaving. She's a serious dancer too. But my feet, as usual, were killing me. When we got home, we were Jim and Katie's nearest neighbors, half a mile away. We could still hear the band. While I was downstairs sleeping, Lois was upstairs with the window open, listening to the music, which because of me, she had to leave. 
It's hard to read how years before his death, David wrote about how much he wanted to stay in his mountain home until the end. Hard because I know that eventually he was forced to move to town, to Montpelier, Vermont, where he eventually passed away September 25, 2016. I always felt that David was a kindred spirit with our shared attitudes and poetic interests. And for those who are interested in a collection of courageous poems facing the ultimate darkness, I can readily recommend Tumbling Toward the End. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this has been Poetry Spoken Here. Join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>